0: Broadcasting from the News Radio 102.9 KARN Radio Center and Studio 1B, it is Gluttony Unplugged with Scott Romine.
1: I gotta tell you guys, anyone that knows me since I was four years old, my entire world has revolved around Star Wars, and it's such an honor to uh, to talk with somebody today that worked in that world and helped bring that to life. Uh, he's got a book out called Inside the Star Wars Empire. Bill Kimberlin worked on uh, return of the Jedi and a lot of the other movies that, uh, gosh, I watch around the clock. Bill, how are you?
2: I'm doing very well. I'm looking at the golden gate bridge. I live, actually, I was born in San Francisco. I grew up in Marin County and that's where Lucasfilm is and was, um, Marin is just across the golden gate bridge from San Francisco. And, uh, So George has his 5,000-acre Skywalker Ranch located there. But I worked starting in 1982 on what was then called Revenge of the Jedi in uh, San Rafael in uh, sort of what they call the canal area. Now, if you were to look at a real estate map uh, with the zoning information on it it would call this area light industrial the same as the original location in los (laughs) angeles light industrial that's so you could blow stuff up if you had to and all george had to do was add the word magic and he had his company where i worked and uh so it was a series of about seven buildings And it was separate from where the beautiful Skywalker 5,000-acre ranch is because we were too dirty and messy, uh, (laughs) destroying, you know, uh, spaceships and stuff to uh, be invited to the ranch. But I would go out there for lunch a lot. And, of course, the people that live there uh, or work there – it was difficult for them to go to lunch because he's like, you know, 40 minutes outside of anywhere where you can get a sandwich. Uh, so he has a, a beautiful restaurant in the main house and also a less formal place where you could get a hamburger. And uh, it had a handball court and a Olympic-sized swimming pool, etc. So wow. that's sort of the...
1: Sounds like Graceland on steroids. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Actually, we had a theater. We were in a D building. That's where ILM was located on Kerner Boulevard. And we had a sign on the door and it said Kerner Optical Research because we were hiding from everybody. Sure. Because by the time of Jedi, you had people showing up from Nebraska and walking into the lobby and asking questions. And you had kids <laughs> going through the you know, we had these big, uh, garbage dumpsters and the model shop would throw away a lot of stuff. So on the weekends, the kids would come around climb through them and see if they could find something interesting to take back to school on Monday morning. And, uh, one time we caught this kid, he was about five, every, all the other kids ran off and we were just kind of goofing around. (laughs) And, uh, so he stomped his feet and he said, I didn't get anything. Well, that's when we realized we shouldn't be capturing little children. Right. So he got the A tour. And in those days, you nobody got the A tour of our facility. And, uh, you know, the mannequins for C-3PO and Darth Vader were there. But that was long before you could see him in a video store or something. So he had something to talk about when he got back to grammar school.
1: I guess these were screen used. I mean, were they weren't stored somewhere yet?
2: Well, like say R2 D2, we were still working for these and, and and I've got a photograph of, there's about 12 of them and there's some model shop guys, um, standing behind them. These were, you know, radio controlled. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so some of them had to, be able to move on their own. And then like anything like this, like the shark and jaws, it, it didn't work like sure half the time.
1: <laughs> and,
2: uh, but yeah, yeah no, uh, the, we had, we had Dar- a seven foot Darth Vader cape and all in our lobby with a bunch of, uh, you know, photographs and things. R2-D2, one of those was, in the C screening room, which I started to tell you about, so the C screening room was originally a sound mixing room, and it was next door to our building, D building. And George and Marsha Lucas built that because these folks had spent their lives and st- in studio editing rooms, which are horrible cement block things. Yeah, and in studio screening rooms so when they got to the point where they could build their own building with their own motion picture theater mixing room and their own editing rooms they were fabulous the editing rooms had banks of windows they had a patio garden out the door i mean they were there were some someplace you could hang out with a plush carpet uh and then right across the the hall, you had this incredible theater that was done in an art deco style. and I'll tell you, I never took anyone into that theater on tour without when I opened the second locked door or not not lock. I mean there was a like a sound lock between mm-hmm. two five inch thick oak doors. I never took anyone in there who didn't say, "Wow. <laughs> I, I guess this stuff still there. exists, right? It's still there. Yeah. And they still use it. So a group of former employees have taken over the, uh, buildings, I think two main, three main buildings that have a giant stage, uh, and a, and a smaller stage in that screening room. And the original D building, um, I don't think that's much in use. I got a chance to walk through it here a few years ago, and it didn't. <laughs> it was memorable, but it didn't look the same.
1: Right. Well, before uh, all so this, anyway,
2: that Go theater ahead. is not connected. The mixing theater, C theater, is not connected to the rest of the building. It's sort of floating in there mm. to reduce the odds of sound traveling either in or out. So it was a little like a uh, a cathedral when you walked in there, but it was. Beautiful for screening uh, films.
1: I got to ask you, hey, Bill, before you get this dream job, what's the movies and TV shows that influenced you growing up?
2: Well, let's see. Uh, When I was a kid watching television, there were all kinds of cowboy westerns and Flash Gordon movies and then just old movies because um, the... Type of uh, original television material that they had to run was limited. So they used old movies as uh, filler, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than running a test pattern. So I saw a lot of those. And when I lived in Ross and I was about seven or eight, we had a next door neighbor. And the next door neighbor, whenever I took something that my aunt wanted her to have, her television was running full blast, 24-7.
3: <laughs>
2: and so I asked my aunt, I said, what's going on over there? And she says, oh, you're too uh, young to remember. But her stage name is Bessie Barrowscale. And she was one of the biggest silent screen stars in America for about 10 years. Oh, wow. And her husband was a film director. And she has the TV on. All the time, because she never knows when one of her films is going to show up. and uh Or one of her buddies, like she was close with uh, Mary Pickford. So th- the thing I'm saying is that if you're a kid and you have never imagined anything, never been introduced to anything like motion pictures. And then my mother took me to a, a the set of a movie called Blood Alley and there's a giant stack of boulders on one side and i happened to bump into them they moved right well how's that possible you're super strong (laughs) yeah they they were paper mache or whatever and that really struck me as that adults worked in a creative enterprise making movies.
1: Let's take a quick break. We're talking with Bill Kimberlin. He's got a book out called Inside the Star Wars Empires" on Amazon. We'll be right back here on Guatney
0: Unplugged. You're listening to Guatney Unplugged. On News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine, brought to you by Guatney Automotive
1: Group. We're talking with Bill Kimberlin. He's got a book out called Inside the Star Wars Empire. He worked on Return of the Jedi and so many awesome movies. You can get that book on Amazon. Hey, Bill, before you work at ILM, you make a movie called American Nitro. And I saw the trailer on YouTube, and it looks exactly like something that would have been right up George Lucas's alley.
2: Well, uh, before I worked at Lucasfilms, Industrial Light and Magic, I had a friend that worked there. And he said, why don't you bring your movie over and run it for us guys after work? You know, we'll get a case of beer and and watch a fun race car movie. Oh, yeah. So I ran it for him. And about two or three minutes in, somebody yelled out, has George seen this? And about a month or so later, I was working there. Now, they hired me because I had worked as a film editor and I'd made my own films. And visual effects uh, tends to, the the people working on it tend to focus on a single shot, a single image, and not so much with how that integrates into the, you're making a moving picture here. Uh, And... They wanted somebody who had that experience of integrating uh, visual effects into a sequence. So Mm -hmm. I was given the space battle sequence for uh, Return of the Jedi. And the cover of my book, Inside the Star Wars Empire, a memoir, is SB-19. That was the 19th shot in the space battle. And it's become kind of a famous shot because it's the largest shot ever done on an optical printer. In other words, we were working in division. We were putting together shots of models that were being photographed by a camera mounting on basically a crane with a little railroad track. And the movements were being recorded by a computer so that they could re- be repeated. So the model didn't move the camera move
1: Dijkstra flex, right? Is that exactly? Yep. Yeah.
2: And so when you have a blue screen behind it and then you suck the blue out, you have a ship that appears to be moving. Cause you have no frame of reference. It looks like it's blasting past you. And, uh, you can then take all those elements and, um, put them together to make a, an exciting shot. That's maybe only two or two and a half seconds long. But fit into a sequence that is kind of modeled after, if you've ever seen these uh, victory at sea old World War II mm-hmm. uh, documentaries with the uh, Japanese dive bombers and the and the guys on the ships shooting at them and the cutting back and forth. I mean, when George cut Star Wars together originally, instead of putting in a storyboard that said shot missing. Uh, you know, for where there was going to be a, a, a an effect shot, he would cut in um, scenes from these documentary movies that were made. You know, they had them. They had cameras inside the, the plane, American planes and mm-hmm. British planes, and they had footage from the, uh, you, you know, the guys firing from the battleships. And that gave the thing a sense of of life. And that he repeated when he had to shoot them as models, but in basically the, the correct movement. In other words, if you have a storyboard, and we had a, walls of storyboards, which are hand-drawn images that try and describe what the shot looks like and what elements are in it. The, you know, Darth Vader's in it, or a spaceship is in it. It's a foreground, it's a background, whatever it is. Uh, it's difficult to show and movement, and so by putting in, you know, just like a fake temp movement, it, it let it be a fast cut environment that a um, a studio, for instance, could imagine.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that, you no, know, remember, this is a he only got to do this film because he made a film called American Graffiti, yep. which was a huge success it wasn't it didn't start out that way but it's one of these movies that didn't have anybody showing up originally but then they just kept coming and it kept running (laughs) and running and running until he made enough money i mean he was not supposed to make any money on that uh, film because first-time directors with new contracts they don't get anything but what they call a net deal. In other words, if we wind up with any money, which they never do, then right. you get a little. <laughs> well, yeah. this one made so much money. I think it's up to $200 million now. It costs 750000 to make. And uh, if you make that much money, there's no w- way to hide it anymore. And the <laughs> filmmaker got some money, and that's why Star Wars happened that's why a lot of guys were hired
1: bill i want to ask you i've always wondered and i've seen footage of you working on star wars and as you organize these space battles was was there ever point with the technology that multiple multiple passes and more and more elements start to degrade the quality like we know in videotape
2: no because that's why george decided to work in VistaVision for the visual effects shots. So VistaVision is a format that's four times larger than 35mm film. And Hollywood developed that because they were trying to compete with this new entity called television, which was sucking their audience away at a rapid pace. And they thought, okay, we'll give you something on the screen that is so big and beautiful uh, Mm. that television will not be able to match it well I got you. that this division format you know fell out of favor but george realized he could go down get those cameras shoot the backgrounds in this super high quality and it's all it's all a reduction process but if you if you reduce from something that has that much uh, sharpness and definition When you get down to 35 even though it's a composite it's going to look good
1: it's still not going to be able
2: to tell it's going to be cut inable we graded our shots with three names temp which might even be black and white cbb color standing for could be better or final the could be betters were shots that we felt that uh, we were confident it could be cut into the director's movie and, and it would be fine. So unless the director like rejected it or we had enough time at the end, we would go back and redo them and try and make them all finals. And mostly we were able to do that.
1: It's kind of like so, you had 4K long before there was 4K.
2: Well, the ability of motion picture film as far as sharpness and grain structure and all, if you have a large enough format or even a Panavision original, original footage from a Panavision camera is, uh, you know, is comparable to anything. The the only real big difference is that the prints get beat up after a while. Mm. And now today with digital projection, which, (laughs) uh, well, you You don't get any degradation. Uh, And ironically, Kodak invented the first digital still camera, but they never followed up on it.
1: I didn't know that.
2: It's it's probably like why the encyclopedia salesman that went door to door (laughs) did not want to put the encyclopedia on the internet because it would, it would destroy their business structure
1: yeah it, it kind of happened you know
2: you know it's like the railroads thought they were in the railroad business when they actually were in the transportation business and they should have bought the airlines they had plenty of money to corral that but they never got that concept and that happens to a lot of companies.
1: Hindsight's 2020. Hey, we're talking with Bill Kimberlin. He has a book out called Inside the Star Wars Empire. You can go get it on Amazon. We'll be right back here on Guatney Unplugged.
0: You're listening to Guatney Unplugged. On News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine, brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group.
1: Hey, Scott Romine here. We're talking with Bill Kimberlin, uh, my new best friend, talking Star Wars and Return of the Jedi and all this awesome stuff. Get his book on Amazon called Inside the Star Wars Empire. Bill, I, I watch footage of you assembling these space battles and and kind of get the concept of how you're layering all the ships and all of these elements At what point in time does that job become a computer thing, and does anybody still do it the way you did it anymore?
2: Uh, No, they don't do it that way anymore. It's not that they won't use traditional methods, especially if it's cheaper, and also uh, television commercials, which we also did. They kind of like the unique look of things that are hand-animated. Anything to stand out, look different than everyone else. Now, a feature film will do a practical effects shot. They will use models. It depends upon what will do the best job and also what fits in with their budget. I mean, why those guys were out shooting on the the, uh, Western set with you know even blanks when it, it could be done with you know digital effects yep. now i have no idea one thing i do want to mention is i have a, a couple of websites one is a facebook site called inside the star wars empire and you can go to that and and see some of my work and things i'm working on now and then there's another one that is Called, uh, you can go to just go to billkimberland.com and that'll take you to my author's site. And there's some videos and things on there uh, Roger Rabin and a couple other things. uh, And me putting together this SB19 shot that uh, your audience might be interested
1: in. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. How difficult was it, Bill, when you're layering all the elements? I got to think that one of the last things might be like the fire for the engine the thrust i mean how, how how difficult is that to keep that aligned with where it should be on the shot
2: well there's two things there uh, because we had computer controlled uh moves on the ships uh that meant that we could have uh what we called a beauty pass which would be the spaceship mm-hmm. then they would do another pass with the lights on the spaceship Ah. and then they would do another pass say with the engines on the spaceship. So when you got it into optical, you had three separate pieces of negative. So if you wanted the uh, engine to be a little brighter or the lights to be a little brighter or the the body of the ship to be a little darker, you had that control. You didn't have to bring all of them up or all of them down. Uh Now when I was working, on a VistaVision movieola with black and white strips that are temp strips that cameramen make. They shoot it, and then they look at it in black and white, and then they decide if it's okay, we'll put the color film stock in, and then it'll get processed tonight, and we'll look at it tomorrow. So when I work with all these black and white strips, putting the shot together, I bypack them. I'd lay them literally one on top of another, but it'll it'll only take just so many. So I would take, uh, say, four or five of the ships uh, and have the optical department make me another black and white that (laughs) has four or five ships to it. And then I might have four or five of the ships that have multiple ships in it. And then I would call my supervisor. He'd look at it. Then a production person would call George and he would walk over and look at it. So <laughs> so he comes in and I ran the shot by packs like that. And it's got light stands and it's got a camera guys standing around. So you have to you have to concentrate on the ships, but he's been doing it, you know, forever. And so mm-hmm. I and uh, so I run it for him and he says great. Turns around and walks out. So that is an example of the best response you're going to get out of George Lucas. Great. And you know, <laughs> you've worked on it for two months, but that's it. And I'm, I was glad to get it because my boss at the time said he thought we'd be chewing on this shot for, you know, months. But I got lucky and got his okay and it went into the movie and it's it still, you know, it's very short. But it it gets a wow out of the audience, and that's what George was looking for. You know, his his way to approach a movie is show him something right off the bat, like the famous Star Destroyer coming over oh, his yeah. head to the camera. That you now you've won the audience over. Okay, so now you can spend some time <laughs> laying out your characters and your story and stuff because you got them in the palm of your hand.
1: And and that's so true. Did, did, did you ever get any one-on-one time with George Lucas? I mean, is he approachable at all?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, my friend, uh, Tim, at the time, he, George was walking down the hall, and Tim told me, he went up to him, stuck out his hand and said, uh, George. I'm Tim Geideman, and uh, I've worked you, you for t- two and a half years, and I've never met you. <laughs> he said George practically jumped backwards.
1: Oh my god. He's a
2: very shy person around people that he didn't know, but once he got to know you, that was different. So I would try and engage him. Like uh, he brought Thx down to the theater uh, to run for us his first movie, and uh. He said, you know, uh, if you like this, you know, I'll get graffiti and, you know, I'll run that and answer your questions. So I asked him, you know, by this time we're uh, really into CG. I said, George, um, I know you're uh, like digital 24-7 now and you don't want to hear about film anymore. but, (laughs) But do you miss... Uh, that great film look in graffiti, that grainy mm-hmm. technicolor. Uh, well, actually uh, it was done in a, in, in a type of filmmaking where you squeeze two images into one 35 millimeter frame. It's called technoscope. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, no, nah, I'm not known for my cinematography. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't really have nostalgia for it. Another time I was sitting next to him at lunch And I was, uh, we were talking about movies and I said, well, you know, one of the movies that uh, so impressed me was Bonnie and Clyde. You know, it's the only movie I think I ever watched and went back the next day just to, I had to see it again. And he said, he called my office the other day, uh, the director. And he said, the problem is he's an A director and an A director commands an A salary and there's not that many A projects around right now so you know that's the way hollywood works you you haven't had a hit lately and uh, no matter how great your films were before it uh yeah you know it, it, it today is today not yesterday uh famously billy wilder uh who had a string of famous films he gets called into show some young executive's office and uh the guy says to him Uh, Billy, so what have you done? You know, he's done Sunset Boulevard, something like it hot, some of the great films. Sure. And Billy says to the young exec, You first. (laughs) Which I always thought was funny. Uh, So, yeah, I did get a chance to talk to him occasionally, uh, but I never asked him. He came down after Jedi and sat on one of the stages at a table and signed whatever was put in front of him to thank his employees.
1: Oh, that's cool.
2: But he would sign uh, things for any kid who came along. When I was there the first week after screening, we would go across to a place called Foodles and get a cup of coffee or a hot dog, or I mean a donut or something. And, you know, it's my fifth day there or something. George walks in, jeans, flannel shirt, probably a Pendleton pours himself a cup of coffee in a styrofoam cup, gets a donut or something, pays for it, walks out the door. And I said, you know, to myself, doesn't this guy have somebody to go get a cup of coffee for him? And, uh, <laughs> but that's not the point. The point was he wanted to see if he could live like a normal person.
1: Of course. You know, his
2: Kids went to the local schools and people wouldn't bother him because they knew who he was. And that was just a, you know, of a, an understanding in Marin.
1: Yeah, that's right. Hey, we're talking with Bill Kimberlin about Star Wars. We'll be right back here on Guatney Unplugged.
0: You're listening to Guatney Unplugged. On News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine, brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group.
1: Hey, Scott Romine here. Go on Amazon, if you're a Star Wars fan especially, and get the book Inside the Star Wars Empire. We're talking with the author, Bill Kimberlin. He worked on Empire and so many of the other movies. I want to ask you, Bill, you're working there at ILM. And I gotta—I mean, you're hours from Hollywood. I would think there has to be pros and cons of this. If if that's the only movie making game in town,
2: at that time that was true. Uh, You know, now there's Pixar and Zoetrope and you know a a, a few others. But that's why we—they hired a lot of local people. We had we had a guy who was an ex uh, cable car driver. We had a person whose uh, grandfather invented the yellow pages. We had a guy who was a ski champion and, and did the stunt at the beginning of one of the James Bond films. Uh, There were, there were just numerous people uh, uh, welders that did high wire stuff, model makers, painters. And uh, it was kind of a dirty dozen of different kinds of people. But I feel like that, the fact that these people were so different, they weren't, you know, a Hollywood carpenter type person, um, that, that leaked over into the movies somehow. I can't explain that makes sense. how that happens, but I know this, we had, uh, Paul McCartney there with his wife one time and he, he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, be, we were flying him because there was a record that he was releasing about flying, and we had him up on a rig, you know, with a, a blue screen behind him. But I, I could just tell the way the stagehands were able to talk to him that uh, they were like just real people, uh, perhaps not uh, the fancy ones he runs into all the time, and and he was able to. You know, I think that the talent picked up on that and made, you know, social contact with um, just the the people we had in Northern California. You know, it was different environment, different pressure level. I remember when Jim Carrey came to work on uh, the mask. Ah, Okay, so it, it was Jim Carrey and Karen Cameron Diaz or no one had ever heard of either of them. They had made films, but they weren't released yet. So ah. Jim Carrey is standing around, you know, holding up the wallpaper. And I'm watching him. We had this sort of obnoxious producer on this particular film. And Jim starts to go into a, a imitation of the guy. And I, I cannot tell you how he did it, but it was just like magical. <laughs> he just became that guy in a way. And as far as Cameron, everybody thought, oh, she's just the director's girlfriend because he had found her in a fashion magazine or something. But she turns out, both of them turned Major out to be stars. huge stars. So, you know, that's, uh, I think that's why actors get a little perturbed. Um, you know, once they finally get recognized, uh, you know, they can be a little difficult because they've gone through so many years of, you know, they were arguing over his payment for the, for that film, uh, not wanting to pay him as much as they, uh, his agent wanted or something. Sure. A lot of times they start a picture with not everything totally figured out, but, uh, yeah, I, I there's definitely something in the, in the people you hire. That's the other thing. George wanted to keep a group together, uh, that were talented that worked together that he could relate to he'd worked with them before and so he hired us out ilm took on these other projects like the mask and others so then two years later when he got another film ready he could just go back and we're all there in los angeles you can walk across the street and go to another studio when the job is Yeah, you that's do that true. Up in Northern California, even today, you know it's what's maybe co- a little easier now.
1: What's cool to me is is we know you from you know Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, and all that. But you you also dipped your finger in the Star Trek world.
2: I did. I actually I had a chance to be in Star Trek. Uh, my boss Ken Rawson, was shooting. Uh, a scene uh, over on the main stage, and uh, they had hired an actor to play uh, th- th- one of the guards that's standing by this door. And uh, so they asked me to go come over and be the stand-in when they did the lighting and all this. Sure. Stuff. And I said, okay, fine. And then I I did that, changed back into my street clothes, went back to work. And I got a phone call, and the uh, producer said, "Well, um, he's decided that you know the suit fits you so well. Why don't you just play the part? You know?" And I said, "Well, you know, now I'm so busy, I can't. So I was like." that was my, uh, uh, missed chance for immortality or whatever. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be much, but I'd be in the movie.
1: You almost got beamed up. I mean, you know, Yeah,
2: that's right. It would have been, uh, a, a fun story, but that's how it works sometimes.
1: What about Jurassic park?
2: Jurassic park. I made a documentary on how we made that because I heard two, um, I mean that changed everything. Uh, they were going to do the movie. Phil Tippett, the the famous and brilliant uh, model maker oh, and yeah. animation director. Uh, when I say animation, <clears throat> using stop motion puppets to to do these things, he had done a movie called Dragon Slayer, which was oh yeah fabulous quality, tauntauns so anyway, and all that stuff. Then all of a sudden, there's a guy. Uh, who I worked with, uh, they called him Spaz because he was anything but. He was this just, just, just this brilliant guy. You know, that's a name like we, the biggest guy in high school we always called Tiny, right?
1: Sure, of course.
2: So uh, he runs a demo that he's done on his own and Spielberg gets wind of it and looks at it and said, okay, we're doing everything CG. So I made a documentary about making that because I don't think any one person at our company including spielberg knew all the things that, that went into making that and because i had seen a couple of grocery store clerks explaining how we did it like they thought we had giant sort of balloon <laughs> right dinosaurs that they were moving around and uh and i i took it out to a a, a a screening where the audience came out there were a lot of young people and i filmed them and i said well how do you think it was done and they they could care less they said well some kind of animation and one guy said i loved it when the dinosaur ate that guy that was their level of sophistication
3: wow it was
2: just a movie and everybody everybody's parent worries about is is their child going to be you know, ruined by comic books or movies or something. Sure. They're smarter than that. Oh, they yeah, of course. Make. So um, that changed everything. I mean, Hollywood does not like change. They don't want to do it. They don't want to pay for it. They don't want to do um, testing. <laughs> if, if anybody ever comes up with anything that they want, they'll just buy it. And that's what they basically they eventually was kind of forced into getting digital cameras and shooting digitally. Although I understand there's still people shooting on film and God bless them. I'm fine with that.
1: I got a minute left, Bill. What's your take on things after Jedi? I mean, are you a fan of like the Mandalorian or do you keep up with these other things? What, what do you think about that?
2: Well, here's what I think. Um, I think that the, Current Star Wars movies are more movies about Star Wars <laughs> than they are Star Wars movies. I
1: think you're right. <laughs> I, I,
2: one of them I saw this woman, uh, the you know the lead. She never changed her dress in the whole freaking movie. Yeah, George would never. You know, he he in Jedi, he's he's got his leading lady, you know, in a brass bikini Heck or something. Yeah, Love and it. and then the new. These movies need new, neat stuff. And just not enough neat stuff for me. George would never release a movie without a, working with the model shop. I mean, Steve Golling, master model maker, he told me about taking a model uh, out to the ranch to show it to George. And he said he was like a 10 year old. He was like jumping around, he was so excited. <laughs> And I thought, well, what, what, what's happened to all that? Where did that go?
1: That would have been nice. Hey, what's your two websites again, Bill?
2: Okay, so I you can go to BillKimberland.com. The other one is I have a Facebook page called uh, Inside the Star Wars Empire.
1: Well, thanks so much for talking to us, Bill. It was just great having you on the show.
2: Okay, it was a pleasure.
1: Hey, thank Thank you guys. Go out and have a great weekend. We'll see you guys next week on Guatney Unplugged.